0: Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Following the Indy 500 every year, we usually have a ton of questions that come in and we did indeed meet and exceed expectations. I believe the count was something like 122 questions that came in. I don't even want to know how many words all that totals out to, but I can tell you we're going to get to those in just a minute. Greatly, greatly appreciate you, everything that you have sent in for us to get through to our awesome partners at Cooper Tires, who power the road to Indy. Amazing friends at torontomotorsports.com. I know a a decent number of you got to meet Derek Koska and Roger Warwick with the kind of pop-up merchandise love trailer that they had uh, just right outside of Turn 1 at Indianapolis last week. Want to say huge, massive thank you to the Justice Brothers and give them as much love as we can. 71 years between Indy 500 wins. They were indeed on the number 06 Meyershank Racing Honda, driven by our pal Elio Castro Neves. If you happen to look just in front of the rear tires on the little wheel ramps and such, that piece of bodywork, you'll notice that beautiful. Beautiful time honored Justice Brothers logo, the very same you'll see on all the stickers and promo stuff and everything that we do here on the podcast. So massive congratulations to the Justice Brothers family. Also to Roger Warwick, again, sent him a note saying, you know, we do a lot of these fun little show cartoon logos with different era cars and drivers and whatever. We post those on a weekly basis and rotate a two or three per year. Said, hey, would love to come up with one of Elio as quickly as we can and just honor a bunch of things. And in his usual brilliance, Roger came up with a classic. So going to have some stickers coming here soon. You can buy. I'm going to figure out the uh, T-shirt part as well. Make those available for sale too. So that's the plan there. Before we get to your questions, the reason that I'm uh, recording this on a Thursday morning instead of a Monday afternoon or evening, which is normal, or a Tuesday at the latest. Uh, some of you may know, may have read, that someone that we met through the show, first from sending in questions and then he and I got to become pretty good pals, a gentleman by the name of Tom Schreier, uh, committed suicide on Monday. And yes, this is not the super happy start to the show that I had hoped for, but I would just say for those who only want the Q&A part, I don't know how long this is going to be. Hopefully not super long, but freely suggest to fast forward to that bit here if you don't want to hear about uh, this little brush with the harder parts of life. So Tom reached out soon after my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in end of august beginning of september of 2018 had mentioned that his wife jane was dealing with a very rare strain of cancer and they were fighting like mad and had just been a really kind and amazing guy older gentleman i'll be honest i don't remember tom's exact age but late fifties, early sixties, something along those lines. Um, just reached out to say, Hey man, uh, dealing with something similar with my wife, uh, know that this is your first time Pruitt dealing with this. Need anything, need any support, whatever, just reach out, let me know. And he and I formed a pretty quick bond as two guys whose wives, uh, are their worlds, like really, truly our worlds. And just, it's crazy, right? So I'm sure so many of you, the thousands and thousands of you who listen each week, have gone through this, are going through this. We know uh, at least one of our dear listeners, Louise Smith, We're always rooting for you, Louise, you fighting through cancer right now, but it's not a rare thing. But when it lands in your world for the first time, it's like taking a baseball bat to the head. And I have the easy part of being the spouse of the person fighting cancer, going through chemo, going through everything. Our journey has been maybe a little bit atypical to some, uh, with all kinds, all kinds of surgeries, the cancer spreading, uh, some other problems we've never really gotten into, but are almost as big and as challenging as the cancer itself. Fighting two wars on two fronts, um, just it's been a hellish ride. And Tom, being an amazing guy, was just there to reach out and say, hey man, you don't have to do this alone. Um, Even if we don't talk about what our ladies are dealing with, it's just okay to text or email or call or whatever just to keep each other up and vent a little bit, whatever it might be when things get frustrating, get hard. So... Tom unfortunately lost Jane in March of 2019, and I know we tried on the show uh, to give him as much love as possible, tried to be as much of a a friend as I could while going through our own wars. Things got really bad, like really bad for us uh, not long after Jane died. And so still trying to reach out to him, him reaching back out to me and just trying to keep that communal upliftment going was awesome to uh, to know that uh, as one of our listeners here reminded me uh, he and Jane in the last couple months of her life they would actually listen to the podcast in the hospital um and I it's just one of those things where you go good lord what how I don't even know how to put words on that um trying to help Jane you know give her uh, a little bit of boost she uh, she selected Uh, At least one of our guests, they didn't know it at the time. I think I mentioned that as well in a little social media post. But um, Tom would, uh, you know, say, hey, uh, would love to hear so-and-so on and that we'd get him on and just trying to help wherever you can. And so Tom got to come out to the Laguna IndyCar finale in 2019, and he was my guest for the weekend. It was a lot of fun showing him inside and around the sport, uh, up close, he'd been to countless IndyCar races, followed it his whole life. But it's just fun getting to introduce him to you know what felt like most of the paddock. And anyways, uh, stayed in touch after that. Obviously, COVID created a bit of a natural barrier for a long time, and had just I'd noticed recently that I I hadn't heard from Tom in a little while, and it's an excuse. But with the busyness of my life doing this job in the month of May being as hectic as it is, I had just made a mental note that once I get through the 500 this week, I need to reach out to Tom and check in and see how he is doing. And that mental note applies to a lot of things. There's many things I've been holding back, not doing intentionally, because I just don't have the mental facilities, faculties, whatever it is, I'm not good at being able to process intense, multiple intense things when I have a primary focus I have to apply my mind towards. And that's been both work uh, with the 500, the month of May, obviously what we need to attend to at home. So there's a number of things each year that I say I'm going to get to that the first week of June. And this is one of them. Hey, need to reach out to Tom, see how he's doing. So mention all this because that's why the show is getting done on a Thursday morning later than it should be. But uh, I just needed to take a little bit of time to process and grieve. It's not like that part's done, but just needed to process. Uh, Tom took his life uh, Monday morning, uh, watched the Indy 500 with a couple of friends. I didn't I didn't know those friends, but actually um, those friends are the ones that called, reached out and said, hey. Um, need to talk about Tom, and uh, they told me that he had, uh, had this whole thing mapped out. Uh, it looks like he's had it mapped out for a little while and uh, killed himself Monday morning after watching the d 500 with them and uh, leaving his dog with them, who he'd spent some time recently uh, really making sure uh, the dog was uh, socialized, if not bonded, with them. And so... Um, just rough and i don't say that from a personal standpoint who gives a shit what i think or feel about this that really doesn't matter truly uh tom has two adult daughters who are having to process this um obviously with his wife gone and him now gone the grief of his wife's loss is something that in the uh the suicide letter that he left that uh, he asked for it to be shared with his friends. In reading that, which is a surreal thing, by the way, uh, he you know, made it very clear that he tried. He tried his best, uh, whether it was having a dog to care for, um, doing some track day stuff that he loved with uh, BMW that he bought, uh, trying to do a number of things to fill the void and, quote, move on from losing the love of his life. And I'm mentioning this for a reason, by the way. Um, In his suicide note, uh, he made it clear that he felt he'd lived, he'd gotten about all out of life that he'd hoped to get without his wife here. And so there's immense sorrow that he's no longer here in that he kept this to himself and all of us that knew him and and cared for him didn't have a chance to, I don't know if talk him out of it is a way to to put it, but talk through it with him to see if and what he might not see that we did that might be worth sticking around a while longer. Uh, He was at peace with his decision And I can't fault him for that. But it sure does make me deeply sad and sorrowful to know that someone who I enjoyed the world out of and who was so kind and giving and thoughtful, while going through his own pain and wars with his wife, and then after losing her, that he wanted to make sure... My wife and I were doing okay, and was a just a friend and ear and resource, and so just yeah. Um, I wish I'd reached out sooner. I wish I'd. I wish I was more capable of being better at doing intensive two, three, four, five intensive things at once, and so that is selfish. Uh, I wish he was still here. So I could tell him that I love him and appreciate him and that my wife and I would absolutely not approve of him leaving. But uh, that was his choice. Um, Just hard, hard. And so uh, doing this show a couple days ago, as I normally would, the early part of each week, just wasn't really uh, possible. So just want to say thank you to all of you. Um, many of you have said kind things about Tom or remember Tom from the questions he'd send in or uh, whatever else we might uh, might have shared on the show the last couple of years that involved him. Um, it's crazy to think a friend that I met through the show took his own life. I've I know for sure, based on the communications from a number of you, that whether it is thoughts of suicide that you've had recently or years ago, Uh, time you have taken either willingly or with the urging of family or husband or wife to seek mental care. Um, Those are all things I can only continue to advocate for. And uh, if there's any lasting thing that I realize with... Tom's suicide that I need to do a much better job with and of. It is relaying the need, the true, true shared experience that we have here, the need for us to be mirrors and open doors and whatever it might be for the next man the next woman going through emotional or mental problems don't talk enough about my mother and the house that i grew up in I'm not saying that my life and my experiences will have any impact on anybody but i do know that i grew up and was truly born into turmoil as a result of the severe mental issues that my mother had. Can't tell you because I just don't know if they were hereditary or if they manifest from events in her life, but suicide and a lot of other things uh, were part of, her life, her world, and that's what I grew up in. And while I've been fortunate to not have these things passed down, I cannot claim that I've lived a life without depression at times. There's one moment where I wanted to take my life after my father died about 25-ish, 26, 27 years ago, however, however long ago it was. Been there. Um, just don't talk about it as much as I should. And I've never been embarrassed about it. It's never been, there's no stigma to it for me. I, it's just such a normal part of my life and existence and background that to be blunt, it just doesn't stand out as remarkable. And maybe it isn't, but I do know that, uh, not talking about it and not sharing these things sure as hell leaves something that might be of value to someone somewhere uh, off the table. So I need to do a better job here of sharing and relating the harder things in life. We all come here to talk about racing, this show, IndyCar in particular, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But I'm still working this out in my head. I don't know what it's going to be, how I'm going to do it, I'm not going to open every show with some sort of Marshall's tales of mental problems and horror. just need to think about how and what I might do because uh, I'm fairly convinced that I can do more and can do better. And if that's uh, a brighter fire that burns inside of me as a result... Of uh, losing Tom, then I'd say that's a good thing. All right, going to turn the energy up here intentionally, and I'm going to fake it. So I apologize, uh, but I don't want the show to be a downer because the Indy 500 was such an upper. Did I just make a drug reference? I don't. I didn't, but it kind of would have been years ago. All right, let's get the show started here properly. Thanks for those who listened, and also thanks for those who skipped, because not everybody wants to deal with heavy stuff. Totally respect that. All right, we're going to kick the show off with Exambalor. Who? Who, you ask? Exambalor from Reddit. And here's some of my favorite words for the show. Hey, Marshall, I'm a new fan. Ah, Love it when you all write in for the first time. Says I'm a new fan from Australia. Your pod is a great entrance into the sport. It's kind. Hopefully, it won't also lead you out the back door to leave the sport. Says so my question is: Will Elio's win push the case for Meyer Shank's zero six car to go full time, and for him to make a full time comeback, or will it depend on his results for the rest of the, of the races? Says could be a great marketing strength for the team to have a four time Indy five hundred winner in the stable more frequently. Know that we had a number of questions like this. I do greatly appreciate Jim Kaiser who puts together the questions for me each week. Uh, And so, Exambalor from Down Under, thank you for uh, cracking this open. We tend to visit with a couple of bigger items each week for those who are listening for the first time. Tend to do those up front and then get motoring. Here's what I can tell you. I can only expect the efforts being made by Mike and Mary Beth Shank and Jim Meyer to find major sponsors to turn the 06 car into a full-timer so much easier as a result of this win it's a bit of an obvious statement alert (laughs) but this is the thing that when it happens makes it the easiest to find money still doesn't make it easy still doesn't mean they're just sitting there in ohio right now on the floor counting piles of cash that's come in but it does mean they have the best ammunition to go and speak with sponsors and say hey guess what we did guess who you would be attaching yourself to It's not as if saying, and you're going to be part of a three-time Indy 500 winners program is a hard sell. But this is just one that all the positive, everything that came out of it, the sheer joy, just there's everything about this, that if you had to sell it, this is what you'd want to have to sell. Where the deeper question of Elio and full-time comeback gets into an interesting place it's and I asked him on this yesterday when he was on the show you know do you want to do you really want to and I expected him to say yes but there's always that you've been doing this a long time you've just achieved this thing you've been dreaming of for 12 years or whatever it is to get that fourth is there any sense of like okay I finally got that one thing the big thing we know he's always wanted an IndyCar championship but Is this a thing that maybe has him downshifting from 50th gear that he's always in to 49th gear? And no, it was clear. Nope, want to be back, want to be full-time, never want to stop. Assuming they can find the money, I would say that yes, this is a pretty darn strong opportunity for them to make that 06 full-time next year. I think they're going to find enough money to do that. I would just say, thinking a little bit laterally here as well, it is certainly in IndyCar's best interest to have Elio Castroneves in the sport full-time. It's not going to happen for the rest of this season, uh, but starting next year, there's only positives to come from it. From a promotional standpoint, your Indy 500 winner will be at From St. Pete to wherever the heck we finish. Little wrinkle. Two little wrinkles here to close this out. Exambalore. I love that name. I have no idea what it is, but it's awesome. So Elio will be 47 doing this next year full-time with the team, assuming everything goes in that direction. The number isn't so much a concern. Oh, he's 47 and old, therefore that means he's you know, lacking in something or whatever. No, 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 not the case. But we do know that there is a limited runway afterwards. Could he go to 48? He could. Could he go to 49? He could. We just know for sure if Elio goes back to full-time next year, it's going to be a limited window. So where does Meyershank Racing start thinking, planning, and grooming even while Elio is hopefully full-time next year? It's a great question. Knowing in the the pod that I did with Mike on whatever that was, Monday or Tuesday that went up, I think I've written about this. I know we spoke about it in the podcast. There were two drivers this came down to. Who is going to get this six-race deal? It was either Elio or Oliver Askew. We could say, based on how the first race went, made a pretty good decision there's no disrespect to Oliver for those of you who know me listen to the show blah 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 you know that I love the kid and I hate every moment he's not in the series but Elio certainly got the job done and even if Oliver had driven the car and won the race on Sunday it'd be nothing like the bump that we have the just overall glow we're basking in right now perfect choice everything they need depending on where Oliver is in terms of his aptitude, career opportunities, you name it. Would he be the guy two years from now, 2023 to consider putting in the car full-time 2024? Again, whatever that expiration date might be on Elio's full-time status, assuming we can get him full-time. We just know that we're going to have to be looking. Can't really wait. Uh, We'll see a couple years. We'll think, no, Need to think about it now, need to get a plan in place. That's very much a Mike and Mary Beth Shank thing. So who would take the baton from Elio? Great thing for us to pontificate on. Would love to hear some, you know, thoughts. Definitely throw in some social media responses on who might be best to take over from Elio at some point in time in the near future. The last item, and this is probably most key, and for reasons unknown, I forgot to ask Mike a couple days ago. Speaking of planning, speaking of doing things in a very intentional, articulated way, six races this year, same exact plan that they put in place for Jack Harvey in that program. Hey, we're going to do the Indy 500, then the next year we're going to do six, then the next year we're going to do 10, then we're going to go full-time. Got it. They're following that same format, blueprint, whatever you want to call it. That's been the plan with the 06 car. Cool. Well, let's ramp this up. We'll do six this year, 10 next year. Full-time in theory in 2023. Well, are they willing to try and ramp this up to full-time next year if the funding is there? And it's not just the funding, right? Hey, we found money for the racy car. It's, well, we're building a new shop. We have our IMSA program. Uh, We have a lot of contract players that we signed to help make the 06 car run. Uh, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but we would need to hire. You know, we need to. We would more than just get money to run another car. We would have to make a proper expansion of our team. Does that fit the existing plan of everything we're doing? Uh, And could we accelerate that? I don't know. So I should reach out to uh, Mr. Shankity Shank and find out. So maybe I'll remember to do that for next week's show. Uh, Thanks again for sending that in. And I always love when we have uh, new listeners, either new listeners or those who've been uh, listening and just decided to pop in and uh, fire in their first question. Our pal Lawrence Cunningham. How you doing, Lawrence? Uh, quick detour here for 10 seconds. Your thoughtfulness of sending photos each day with my little running man logo or something of taking a photo of something with my little cartoon character on it uh, at the Speedway each morning and sending that over on social media was just a really sweet thing. I think many of you know how much it hurt my heart to not be there yet again. Uh, Lawrence says, hey, Marshall, hope all is well with you and your wife, Shabrell. says, my question is about Elio's last pass on Alex Pillow. Uh, Did or do you think the lap traffic that Elio ended up behind on the last lap benefited him in keeping Pillow from getting a run and going back around says he'd heard a few drivers say that when you're in a line, that once you were four to five cars back, really made it more difficult. Uh, Yes, Elio, I think, mentioned that as well in his visit yesterday, Lawrence. For sure. If this was the two of them running in clean air to finish the race, I can't tell you who would win, but I can tell you I would have expected Alex to go around him at least once in the last lap or two. So... Would have added more drama, I think. But, yeah, the fact that they ended up in a pack, that really, truly helped Elio because of how the aerodynamics are working on the cars these days. So, uh, I don't know, though. I, I'm still not willing to really let myself wander down a path of, if it was just them running sol, you know, 1-2 by themselves... Would Alex have gotten by and won the race? Who knows? Again, dealing with hypotheticals and theoreticals and whatnot, Lawrence. But I just have to believe that Elio's experience would have had him coming out on top. He's done 18 trillion laps there. Uh, He's been under pressure the whole time, none of the time, some of the time. He knows every groove, high, low, backwards, sideways. If there's a guy who knows how to get it done that is in that race, he's the guy so i like to believe traffic and no traffic Elio's still a four-timer uh, our pal james Bethay, james by the way it's so awesome to see photos of you and the family and your beautiful young son that's uh, really cool when you post those uh, he says when can we expect bush beer to become an associate sponsor of meyershank racing if this doesn't happen it'll be a crying shame congrats to the team and elio um has to be in the top three indy 500 races for sure so, here's the thing that I don't fully understand, James. Maybe I'm wrong, and I hope I don't have the the wrong driver here. But if I remember correctly, Bush Beer sponsors uh, what's his name, Kevin Harvick, right? Am I correct? I hope I am. I know Harvick's a popularish veteran in NASCAR, and I know that you know they do some cool activation and liveries and whatnot. Uh, it just feels a little bit limited though, kind of like, hey, yeah, we're just we're sponsoring a guy. It could be kind of anybody in NASCAR. And of course, they want to sell beer and they hope to attach themselves to a popular, successful driver. Got it? All those things make total sense. Not saying they should stop doing those things, but they don't have a story. There's not a ounce that I can think of that I know of as a guy who really doesn't follow nascar that much so probably talking out of my butt but i can't think of any real story for them to use to promote their brand with what they're doing in nascar so don't change it keep doing it, it's working clearly they wouldn't be spending the money each year tens of millions of dollars if they weren't getting something back of value so again that's all good but boy this Shank racing victory the team owner, the earthiness, truthiness, uh, midwesternness—you don't have to write anything. You're saving money by sponsoring them. You don't have to really hire an ad agency to come up with something. Like it's all here. It's a built-in story. the The realest team owner in motor racing wanted nothing more than to knock back and crush a bush light standing near the yard of bricks after winning the Indy 500 and did on national TV. Didn't give a fart, right? Just what? I mean, this is eh, all you do is sign the, uh, the agreement. It costs you a little bit of money to get it from IMS productions, but all you do is get the footage of Shank knocking back the beer. Just, go visit his home use the photos of the cases upon cases i mean there's at last count more than 600 cans of bush light dropped off on his porch <laughs> right it's all there so just saying james and bush you're not they're not listening but i'll pretend they are i don't know what it would cost you compared to what you spend in nascar but i would just think Associate sponsor, primary, I don't know what it might be, but I would have to imagine that for a relatively small amount of money to be added on top of what you spend in NASCAR, a relatively small amount, couple million dollars, you've got some amazing stuff to market and promote to a whole new audience that I don't know how many fans that are going to watch the IndyCar race at my home track at Laguna Seca, I don't know how many bush lights would be considered to be purchased for those sitting up on the hill. Or when we get to Long Beach or Portland or, 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 or. Uh, For probably not a lot of money, you got an amazing story that's already been written for you. And, I mean, if we could just get Shank a lifetime free bush platinum card or whatever it is that might actually end up funding a second car from the money he'd save from buying bush good lord we might have three Meyer shank racing cars on the grid so yeah i'm with you james uh boy this seems like a no-brainer uh ben cohen says so missed uh you being at the track this uh past weekend uh, but thank you for the great coverage from afar just welcome ben obviously and really proud of the racer team um, got a lot of folks who stepped up, uh, once we got into qualifying and beyond and really started putting a ton of content on the site. So I really appreciate the note there. It says congratulations to Elio and joining the four timers club, a question regarding the Marshank racing team, truly incredible to see their rise over the years. Elio was helped with fantastic stops all day long, but his teammate and full-time entrant, uh, Jack Harvey again, had some issues on pit lane. As I know you've stated on another episode, this is an area Meyer shank Racing has concentrated on, but it seems like every week Harvey has issues in the pits. Just a case of a cartoon anvil being held over the team? Or is this an area where we should expect some changes coming up? Um, Yeah, boy. A little bit surprised, Ben, in the uh, pod with our man Mr. Shank, where he, I don't know if admitted the word, acknowledged, whatever it was, that they don't have a pit stop vehicle uh, at their shop. And that is kind of, sort of, pretty much a standard normal thing. And mentioned that the 06 crew, since a lot of them were coming together for the first time, didn't have enough time together. Instead of using the uh, Saturday, the day before the 500, as most teams do, to give their crew the day off or, hey, we're going to head in and do something light until, name the time, 10 a.m., 12, whatever, but then beg off and, and just go get some rest, charge up for tomorrow. And he said they were at the Andretti shop using their pit stop uh, car and just drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling. I cannot speak because I just don't know, Ben, how much that happens on a regular basis with uh, Jack's number 60 entry in the shop and so on. But I would assume, based on Mike's comment about not having a full, you know, uh, car, dedicated pit stop car and whatnot, I would have to believe that that's going to change immediately. I would also have to assume that in the new shop being built, like you might have seen in the videos that were played pretty regularly uh, throughout the month of May of the Peretta Autosport team doing pit stop practice uh, at the Penske uh, shop in North Carolina, right? They've got a whole, not only do they have a car that is set up to be driven in, but a full area dedicated for them to do constant pit stops. All the crews come through, spend time. Here's, It's just uh, like the break room or the bathroom or the whatever, the lobby. It's just a section that is dedicated for doing this and this alone. Uh, I have to believe that's going to be part of what the MSR group put into their new shop. But I would also just suggest, Ben that in Mike's acknowledgement of what they don't have, that with that check coming for winning the Indy 500, that this is going to get addressed to whatever degree it isn't. Whatever he feels they're not doing that they need to, I think that's going to be touched up and cleaned up ASAP. Because as we have seen, unfortunately, there have been, a few too many times where Jack is running well and last year. And I think even the year before there was a little bit of anxiety (laughs) whenever Santino Ferrucci came into the pits with the Dale Coyne team. And it was, wow, look, the kids improved however many positions and running well. And Oh no, his fuel tank's getting low and Oh no, he's got to go to pit lane and you almost cover your eyes. Because you know that he's going to be sitting there stationary while the rest of his friends leave and go continue playing with each other on the racetrack over and over and over again. They did make some changes uh, crew-wise, but I wouldn't hope that there's no need for any crew changes. would just say that it sounds the way that Mike kind of tipped his hand a little bit that they know they're leaving maybe a little bit on the table in terms of at least being equal to what their competitors are doing in terms of pit stop practice training, uh having all you know, all the equipment and everything so that they can make this just a core foundation of their skills. Cause as you see, as we know, all it takes is one slow pick the corner. Usually it's a rear wheel. All it takes is one slow change, one wheel to hang up or whatever it might be. You lose a couple spots and all of a sudden, hey, we were fourth or fifth and now we're seventh, eighth, ninth, and we don't really remember those in eighth or ninth, but we do if you're flirting with the podium. They've just had a few too many of those, as you have mentioned. So I think that's maybe the one of the other bigger knock-on things here Ben yeah hey we're a small team and we're trying to punch above our weight and one day wouldn't it be great to take on those big meanies at Penske and Dreddy and, and Ganassi and hey you just won the you 500 still doesn't mean you're an old veteran team and you've won everything in the world but it's going to be hard to present that as a Bit of a modifier, bit of a soft, oh, hey, we're still trying, we're still getting there. True, that is still a true thing, Ben. Sure makes it hard to use that, though, when you underperform, when you lose out on pit lane, when you whatever that negatively affects your finish. Uh, It's hard to, to trot that out after you win the Indy 500. I wonder how that might shape or sharpen whatever it is within the team. Uh, The gradual mindset, we're working on it. You know, this is, we're only one year and six races into being a full-time IndyCar effort. There's no argument that they still have a ton to learn and improve and all those things. But you win the Indy 500 and folks no longer accept the shortcomings the way they might have beforehand. Just be interested to see how that manifests in what they do going forward to erase and eradicate any of the little soft spots that have maybe held the 60 car either out of victory lane or out of having more podiums. Uh, Last LEO item or two here uh, from Reddit. The caution light news. Uh, will the opinion of the 2002 finish change now that Elio is a four-time winner? Great question. Says, I know Paul Tracy made a jab at Elio, but it was more lighthearted, or will some diehards consider Elio only a three-time winner? Uh, I also love, by the way, that Elio jabbed back, right, after <laughs> getting his fourth. Uh, I love that he set the public record straight in his opinion, and he's always played that nicely and softly from a public standpoint but even though he passed it off a little bit jokingly here uh setting the record straight on 2002 i did appreciate the fact you know he put his chest into it he you know i loved it so the reality is of course uh the folks who have held on to the P.T. was robbed. Elio's a fake 2002 winner. You know, congratulations to the new three-time Indy 500 winner, which I saw not many of, but a couple of little posts like that um, after his win on Sunday. Of course, the people who don't want to let go of stuff aren't going to let go. Hell, go back to 1981 with Mario and Uncle Bobby. There's still some folks who are really bumpy about that. Really grumpy, too. <clears throat> I wouldn't expect that to change here. Uh, I side with the uh, the Team Green approach with PT. I think this was a bit of a jobber deal. Uh, I think this was IMS in the Indy Racing League. I really, truly do not think this was handled or treated in a truly fair manner. I do believe if you wanted to get down to the last minutiae of time on when the yellow light went on and who was where and was PT in the lead and therefore it should have gone to him and blah, 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 all these things that have been turned over and over and over for 20-ish years. If Paul Tracy was the winner of the 2002 Indy 500, I would have no argument with that. I never felt like he got a fair shake because this wasn't an era of IMS and the IRL that I've, I, yeah, mean, I, my, my last year working in it was 2001, so I at least have a little bit of first-hand knowledge of what it was like back then. Yeah, th- this maybe wasn't an era where everything was a thousand percent above board. Reality is, though, they named Elio the winner. That is what is official. That is what stands. And while I think PT uh, got a, a raw deal on it, I don't hold a grudge. I don't look back and say, oh, he's, Elio's a fake winner. No, it's not fake news. He's the real winner. The people who hold the race and decide who wins and affirm who wins, and certify who wins. They put Elio's name there. Therefore, he's the winner. Therefore, he's a four-time winner. So, I know it might be a little bit crazy for me to say something on my podcast that is sympathetic for Paul Tracy. This has nothing to do with the person, but the competition that took place. Reality, though, Elio's the winner. So, uh, for those that still hold a beef and want to argue otherwise. And so, Hey, keep at it. It's never going to change it, but if it makes it feel better, keep at it. Uh, Hey, I would rather, (laughs) I would rather see Elio make a little, uh, knockoff 2003 Indy 500 winner's ring and give it to PT as a little bit of a jokey thing but also a little bit of an olive branch pt would never wear it he's a proud person uh but you know there's still some fun to be mined from this so let's see if they're willing to do so but the jabs back and forth i thought that was fun and to my surprise because PT's usually good at you know the the knockout punch i was a little bit surprised for him to lay back when elio uh Set his record straight. So, anyways, good stuff there. Uh, Michael Brennan, you close the theme here. Marshall, now that he has four wins and a phenomenal overall record at Indy, can we say Elio is the greatest of all time at Indy? What say you? All the best to you and continued prayers for you and your wife. I'm going to take a sip of coffee. I would place Elio in a group of greats. I would by no means... Name him the greatest of all time. And that's no disrespect intended. Uh, Over sharing here, if you didn't know, he and I have been friends for 25 years. We've known each other for a long time. Uh, Worked with him on a racing team, the Hogan Racing Kart IndyCar team. I was an engineer on that team. Not a very important one, but hey, that's cool. There are different levels of engineering importance. I was not... important but you know known each other for a long time worked together on the same team as teammates blah 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 uh love them would love to say yes my old pal elio is the greatest of all time having earned his fourth i just can't and it's for one specific reason and i was uh, chopping this up a little bit with our our friend of the show jeremiah morrell uh, if you look at Elio's numbers, right, his uh, finishing rate and so on, you know he's better than has a better average finishing rate or number or whatever you want to call it uh, compared to AJ Foyt, Ellinson Sr. and Rick Mears. That number cannot be denied. It's significant. It's two or three positions better than any of them. So you'd say, well, wow, the guy's just done his 21st and 500 on top of matching them with four wins. His average finishing position is better than all theirs as well by a, a pretty good amount by the numbers. You'd have to say he's the best. It's the same argument about why Michael Schumacher, like nobody that has seen those that came before him, uh, maybe even after him would say, oh yeah, uh, best of all time. Um, This is somebody in Elio who's had the good fortune, the good, good fortune to spend his entire Indy 500 career in spec or spec ish cars. This is someone who has not had the misfortune of being in a home built or, you know, team built special that was way off or having an engine that was blowing up all the time underperforming you name it i'm not saying he always had the best engine in the back of his Delara, or were there g-forces maybe um but if you look at his career over the 21 years or whatever it is he's always been in the spec era of indycar at the indy 500 beforehand in cart different case different chassis different engines a lot of different stuff but in terms of his first visit to the indy 500 on until last sunday he's had the one thing all the others did not have which is the reliability of a spec car and the pretty darn close to always equal engine compared to the rest of the competition When you've got those things, you absolutely should have a better average finishing position than the other four-timers because they were in for the majority of their careers, specials, home-built, Rick Mears. How many Penske chassis was he in? I realize not every chassis he was in was a Penske, but just saying, the vast majority were Penske's. Variety of engines quite often good if not great engines not always the best though years where the chassis often they were the best there are also years where there are a couple dogs in there um uh, aj all over the map from the roadster era to <laughs> from the roadster era to rear engine to then turbocharging to then wings to then ground effects to then kit cars right the the British-era kit cars of Lolas and Marches and such, uh, all over the map. Some of the designs, wonderful. Some of them, terrible. Uh, yada, 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 yada. Al Unser, similar thing, all over the map. Some awesome, some not. It just takes away the ability to compare Elio to the others. If Elio had spent 21 years in all manner of chassis engine combo back then as well. Tire combo. Granted, I don't think any of them all, uh, Al Rick and AJ retired before Firestone had come back in, in whatever that was, 94, 95. But at least beforehand, there was a period where some of them uh, were talking about tire wars. Some were the good ones, some of the bad ones each year. So there's so much variability here, Michael, that, I can't put Elio in the conversation as being a goat because he had the equipment, no fault of his own, right? It's just the era he was in, but Elio has been in the equipment that would best serve a driver to get four wins and finish the majority and pretty much always be competitive. The others didn't and yet still won four times. So, i'm leaning more in the mirrors i've always felt rick was the best uh, i'm leaning more in the mirrors side but still uh, as much as i love elio um i i just can't uh promote him into the goat status but that's me maybe you feel different uh jack kelly look at this i'm smiling i got two reasons to smile here by the way uh, Long time listener, first time question contributor. Jack Kelly, thank you. It says Felix Rosenquist had a rocky start to his Air McLaren SP career, middling results versus his teammate from the heights of rookie of the year in 2019 and solid races with Chip Ganassi Racing. Where did he and the Air McLaren SP team go from here? Uh, the team was not shine dumping Ask You last year. Oh, yeah. Uh, Another just obvious statement alert, man, I love me some Felix Rosenquist. Love the kid. Really do. I uh, was rooting for him to be here before he got here. I uh, was rooting for someone to pick him up once he did arrive in Indie Lights, and uh, I'm just always true. Just the fan, right? Got to be impartial as the professional, but just as a fan, and I consider myself a fan doing this show with y'all, I'm always rooting for Felix to do well, especially when things aren't going well. And... I wish I had an answer, Jack. There's been some cartoon anvils raining from the sky on him. He's also made a number of mistakes this year. He sped on Pit Lane, for example, at the 500. He wasn't the only one. There are a couple of speeders who got caught, and their days were ruined. Scotty McLaughlin being one of them, right? Hate it for him. Hate it for him. But they did, and it ruined their days. (sighs) The car didn't speed, they sped. Granted, if there are some braking issues thrown in, okay, then we can't really put it on them. But for how the season has gone, I can't speak, of course, for Felix and how he might feel, but I would say as an interested observer, I would describe this as a nightmare start. His teammate, how's this? His former teammate from Chip Ganassi Racing, team leader Scott Dixon, <coughs> went into the Indy 500 <coughs> excuse me. as the championship leader. Came out in P2, Alex Pillow, jumped in front of him. Alex Palou driving the same exact car with the same exact crew and the same exact engineer. Alex Palou has won a race, finished on the podium twice, only had one bad race, St. Pete, 17th, right? All right, yeah, hey, cool. But every other race has been a finish between first and seventh place. Out of the six so far, he has a finish of first, second, third, and fourth. So just saying, four out of the six are top fours. Uh, he's leading the championship, unless there's some sort of epic collapse. Whether it's he starts messing up, things start breaking, he gets hit, whatever. Unless there's an epic collapse here, the guy is going to be a serious title contender all year long. So the guy who replaced Felix in the same number 10 Honda, (coughs) sponsored by NTT Data, same sponsor, same, 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 is wearing out the front of the field. The guy who is his teammate, who won the championship last year, he's been first or second in the standings all year long. Indy 500 didn't go his way. Not Dixon's fault in this case. It was a strategic decision that caught him and uh, two of his other teammates out at the 500. But nonetheless, the team that Felix left, and he did leave, uh, it was a choice, uh, is 1-2 in the standings. And the car he used to drive is... Oh boy, sitting first. Um you look at his teammate, Pato Award or as Jimmy Fallon said what was it? Pato Word. I think that's how he pronounced it on the show. Really bizarre. Uh that award guy has a win this year. He has four finishes inside the top 4 and is third in the standings, 1 point behind Dixon. Right? <laughs> uh Pato could be up to second once we get two or through at least round one at Detroit, and then you look back and you move your eyes far down the list. Felix is twentieth in the standings. Want to know how bad Felix's year has been? He's twentieth with eighty-two points. Romain Grosjean, who's done half as many races, Romain has done three races, to Felix's six. Roma is 1 point behind him in 21st Tony Khanon similar only done 3 races is 2 points behind Felix in 22nd with 79 points so just an indicator of things that we can't ignore you obviously raise the question things that we cannot bypass wow this has been a six race long kick in the nuts for Felix His best finish, best, is 12th. Three of his six finishes are 16th or worse. (sighs) I feel so badly for him because we know he's a guy that has the talent to be up there, top three, four, five, six, seven, up towards the front. I don't know what the, quote, problem is. We do know for sure, again, hasn't all been his, quote, fault. There have been some unfortunate things that have happened. Also been a number of things, too, that he has brought on himself that has not made life super awesome. My hope, because it's about all I can think of right now, which is hope. This little break between the 500... Going into Detroit allows for a mental reset, a spiritual reset. I don't know if there's some magic potion that he drinks. If he finds and burns some sage, that's a very kind of granola thing to do, man. I don't know what he does, but he needs to do something to break whatever this Bad thing is bad jujubegone.com. That's where he needs to go and buy some bad gone. It doesn't exist, but I wish it did. But we're getting to the desperation point, I would think. And I hate that. That's the case, Jack. But when you are six races into a 17 race season and you just completed. The double points event that gives you that moonshot towards title contention or drops you like a rock. When you finish 27th at the one almost mid-season race that can turn your year around and you come home five, six spots from last, it's, oh boy, it's, it's, just hard, hard to accept. So I don't know what the answer is. I know that his race engineer, Blair Perschbacher, same guy who was vying for a championship a couple years ago with Robert Wickens. Is Felix as talented as Robert? I don't know. I feel like Robbie might have a 10th a of a second or half a 10th. I don't know exactly, but I don't even know if that's really the point, Jack. Uh, Felix is a scrappy fighter man that guy is good robbie scrappy fighter man that guy is good working with the same engineer the same team one of those two is continually getting less out of the car than the other did where robbie took the lead in the team uh, he and his pal mr hinchcliffe robbie became the team leader pretty quickly among the drivers just based on results was leading the team forward Was incumbent upon Hinch to rally back, fight back, and reclaim that position. Didn't necessarily happen, but they weren't, it wasn't a night and day difference between the two in terms of performance. There's been a night and day difference between Pato and Felix. I know Felix is new to the team. I know that there's a lot of things we could say there. Robert Wickens was not only new to the team, but new to IndyCar. (laughs) He'd done one Friday practice session the year before, was it? Uh, before becoming an IndyCar rookie, having to learn ovals, having to do all kinds of things. Not piling on here with Felix, but he has done two years. Been to all the tracks, won a race, been great on ovals, been right, not a lot of holes in the game. So other than getting to know a new team, working with Chevy for the first time instead of Honda, again, a couple things that are new for sure. But if you look at where Robbie Wickens came in, with everything to learn and was an instant contender with Blair, with this team. This is one of those mysteries where you have to wonder what isn't clicking either between driver and engineer or what in the driver's mind is not providing the clarity to then find the right setups, make the right decisions on when and where to pass How hard to push in a corner on cold tires? And if you go too hard, do you go off into the gravel trap and not have a chance to qualify? How hard to push on entry to pit lane? And does speeding become a possibility, which then ruins your race? I don't know. Uh, I just don't know. But, boy, it makes me sad because Felix should be up there kicking butt. All right, let's let's keep going here. We do have a lot of questions to get through. I did not mention, by the way, at the opening of the show as to how long this episode would be, because I want to stop doing that to myself, because I'm always wrong, and so I'm wrong enough on a daily basis that maybe I should just stop setting myself up to fail there. Uh Matt Hockey Hawkins says, MP, longtime listener uh to the sports car show, the week in sports cars, first time questioner for the week in IndyCar. Thanks, Matt. That makes me so happy. I'm smiling like a bigger idiot than usual. For someone who's now got the bug for IndyCar, would you recommend going to the Indy 500? If so, any tips you could give? I'm now actively looking to go to the Indy 500 in a few years. Definitely don't go, Matt. Terrible race. No one likes it. No one ever shows up. Of course, brother. Absolutely. I would recommend, uh, if I I could be totally wrong, are you in the UK? I think you're in the UK. I, I apologize if I am getting that wrong, but if you're going to do this, Not only do it, but I would recommend if you can make a longer trip out of it, definitely come out and try and take in qualifying weekend and stay through and use the the time in between to go and see some pretty cool things in and around the state. Um, Take in some short oval dirt track racing as well. Uh, Maybe go venture out and see the kids, our Road to Indy kids powered by Cooper Tires, of course. Uh, go see them at uh, Lucas Oil Raceway near the track. Track I'll always call IRP. Um, go be a part of the culture. See it, feel it, experience it. Drive around Chicago's four hours north or whatever. Um, you know, there, There's a lot of cool stuff to go do and see for sure. So if you can, absolutely come on out. Uh, book your hotel early, really, really, really early so you can find something that's closer to the track compared to a 40-minute drive outward that is still going to cost more if you book it late. So uh, certainly we'll give you more specific suggestions on things to go see and do once you get that locked in, Matt. But it is a bucket list thing in life if you're a racing fan. Go to the Indy 500, go to the Daytona 500, 12 hours of Sebring. I know Monaco's one of the three great races I've never been, so I, I can't offer any insights as to whether, boy, go see it, it'll blow you away or not, but it's one that we know about. Get yourself down under to Mount Panorama, see the Bathurst 1000, 24 hours of Le Mans, you can get to Spa for something or the Nürburgring, you know, this is the motor racing fans bucket list and little bit biased. I'd put the Indy 500 at or near the top, but yes, please do it for yourself. I think what you will find is the communal aspect of the Indy 500 might be a little bit different than you find at some of the events that I mentioned. Not all, because some of them are just like, a big hug from your fellow racing fans, and it's going to be amazing. Some won't. Le Mans, not really that way so much. Uh, I wish it were, but it's not. But Indy 500, it is a place where folks love being there. Everyone has a real deep family story, a link, something that goes back multi-generations, even if they're a first-timer and been going there for however many years, there's a personal aspect to this event that folks take pride in. Tends to be a really awesome conversation starter. Tends to be a thing where it's very rare where a group of folks sitting in a cluster wherever they're on the grandstands to just be silent among one another, not communicate, not share, not shake hands, introduce each other, stand up and talk. Hey, would you like a this? Would you like a that? If it's folks who are camping outside the speedway, inviting one another over for drinks and food and whatever, it's a, it's a gathering. And I, I think that aspect of it, Matt, is something that you and uh, any that you might be able to bring with you would truly love. All right, we're getting to the question that I've been asked, I think, 110 million times since Sunday. And it took me a little while to uh, lock down everything on this. And it's about brakes, man. Uh, them's the breaks. Uh Wellington Neasley. And I'm sorry that I just screwed up your name, Wellington. Wellington Neasley. So, Greetings, Marshall. And uh, Jim chose your question to represent the dozens on this that came in. Uh, there were a number of incidents with drivers entering the pits only to have their foot go straight to the floor. I know the drivers are told to pump the brakes when they're preparing to pit. couple of questions. Do the teams install something on the brake calipers to pull the brake pads away from the rotor in order to reduce parasitic drag? Says that seems like something reasonable for qualifying, but could be absolutely terrifying during the race. As I recall, the IndyCar switched brake caliper or brake suppliers a few years ago that there was some grumbling intent. Uh, I'm intentionally not referencing the two manufacturers. Uh, could the braking issues be equipment related? It seems odd that the drivers with a wide range of experience struggled with the same problem. Uh, also mentions, hope you and your brother are doing well. Hope to see you back at the speedway next year. Thanks, Wellington. The gold dream desire and everything in the Pruitt household is for my wife and I to be at the 500 next year together. So, Yes, that's the dream. So brake manufacturers, happy to mention them. Uh, Know both, respect both, etc. The former brake supplier to the NTT IndyCar Series, Brembo. The current, I believe since 2018, in terms of exclusive and full package, that would be PFC Performance Friction Corporation. So you are spot on as to what those that I've spoken with on pit lane, and we are talking crew chiefs, just regular mechanics, engineers, the usual deal, call a lot of friends, say, hey, um, what do you think? And had a pretty strong inkling as to what it was, but uh, still wanted to speak to those who are in the know. They all came back with the same answer. And so... Obviously, I don't share my sources, but I can tell you they're real people, meaning they're real, okay? They, they're they not jokers. They're not, you know, two people removed, and they overheard. I'm talking about people 100% in the know because they do it uh, themselves. <clears throat> Sorry that my voice is trash, but this is my unpolished turn of a show, so I think you guys expect it. So there's a system that comes as part of the PFC caliper kit. Um, It's the brake pad retraction kit. Pullback springs is what they were called back in the day when teams devised their own, when they were allowed to. And these have been around for a really long time. It is exactly as Wellington describes for those who aren't super technically inclined or maybe don't care about this stuff, it's a really basic premise. As you hear about each year, specifically on the super speedways, we only really have one now with Indy, but when we're talking about the big ovals with really long straightaways, where they are the r- lap time is obviously a function of power and uh, aerodynamics and whatnot, well, just like teams try and do everything they can to remove drag, right, from the wheel bearings and inside the transmission and make sure the body is fitted perfectly and there's no gaps or seams that would cause undes- unneeded turbulence that would slow the car down. All of these little, I always refer to them as little parachutes, little tiny parachutes throughout the car that slow it down in a straight line and therefore, obviously, bring the uh, lap speed down teams spend an inordinate amount of time trying to remove all the little bits of friction or aerodynamic drag, all these little tiny parachutes that slow the car in a straight line. And the like Ed Carpenter racing, for example, what was the big question coming out of qualifying? How the heck did they beat up on all the other Chevys and team Penske in particular? I mean, you got to imagine, got to think that when it comes to perfecting their cars, removing more of those little tiny parachute type things to slow it down in a straight line, they did a better job than the rest in the Chevy camp. So same thing applies here with brakes. Now, if we're talking about your road car, you're firing down the highway, going down a two-lane road, whatever, your tires are spinning, wheels are spinning, brake discs are spinning, obviously. It's all, they're all connected and attached, spinning the same time. You have your brake calipers at all four corners. You have your brake pedal. Hopefully you have a brake pedal. Hopefully, yep, that was one of the options you paid for. And connected to that brake pedal, brake master cylinders that manage the brake fluid. You press on the brake pedal, the master cylinders then kind of a plunger system. If You think of maybe a syringe pushing fluid out, push that brake fluid out through the brake lines, out to the calipers. In those calipers, there are pistons that extend outward. They're pushed. The pistons themselves are moved outward by that, brake fluid so you step on the brakes that fluid gets pushed out pushes the back of those pistons and those pistons which have the brake pads sitting right in front of them smash those pads into the brake disc so step on it pistons clamp push the pads up against the brake discs you slow down those pads on your street vehicle do not rest right up against the discs. They sit super, super close, but they're not actually making contact with them most of the time, right? Otherwise, you'd be slowing down. Uh, You'd probably be smelling brakes a lot of the time. That's designed into the system. With IndyCar, there's a bit of an extra step that gets taken. And... What is pretty cool about this is teams realize you know, even though we're not trying to have the brake pads connect and touch the brake discs, even though that really doesn't happen very much just going in a straight line on the speedways, when we turn, if we happen to hit some, hit a little rumble strip, if we, there's a lot of little things that could happen where. Get a little bit of knockback from the pad. You get contact between the disc and pad. You get friction. You get slowed down a little bit. And so, teams, smart teams, said, Well, hey, those are four little potential mini parachutes causing friction and drag and slowing us down, bringing our average speed down. Let's come up with our own little homemade way of preventing that. And so, the quote, pullback springs. something that came up with decades ago and this is again more super speedway type stuff than anywhere else and that's in this spring system just truly did like what it says pulls the pads back and away from the disc to make sure that there's no contact no friction no slowing down and so when it came time to use the brakes driver would obviously step on the brake pedal and have to apply maybe a little bit of extra force to push through those springs, overpower the springs, pads smash up against both sides of the disc, car slows down. Got it. So that's a basic premise we're talking about here. With the modern system, which is, again, off the shelf, buy it, install it, and use it, no longer homemade, no longer allowed, right? You can only use what PFC sells. They're not springs they're little spring-loaded levers that hold the pads back two ways of using them traditionally and this is just going to try and get to the uh, the answer here and then move on i've written about it i think 1500 words just going up on racer today again i apologize took me a little longer than expected to get my post race column done but It is 100% normal, Wellington, and for everyone who's curious about the brake problems, it's 100% normal for basically every team at the Indy 500 to use the PFC pad retraction kit. You can, I shouldn't say can, you do. Each team sets how much those pads are pulled back, the gap. The problems that we saw, based on what everyone that I spoke with says they are convinced was the reason behind it, is about the gap that was used for race gap. It's a pretty narrow one. It's not pulling the pads back very much. Driver having to get on the brakes, Maybe pump it up a little bit, as we said, because if we're pushing the pads back, even a little bit, we're pushing the fluid back. So it's not necessarily sitting there ready to go uh, at the back of the piston. So got to pump up the pedal a little bit. Gap isn't massive to overcome to have to move those springs, the little spring-loaded levers. Pump up the brakes a bit. Shouldn't be too crazy of an effort to get the brakes happy and functioning. Get that pedal pressure, get those levers overcome and pads smash against the discs. Car slows down coming into pit lane for a pit stop, then you 500. Normal practice, basically all 33 cars in the race. Maybe one or two didn't. Who knows if the team's new, didn't know about it, whatever, but standard practice. Small gap, we'll call that the race gap. There's a qualifying gap as well. And that tends to be significantly wider. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of an inch, right? 10 thou, 20 thou, 30 thou, 40 thou, probably not 40. But anyways, the, the race gap would be on the very low end. The qualifying gap would certainly be double, triple that. And we're still not talking a ton of distance, right? But... As far as the braking system is concerned, it's a lot. It's a lot. Well, that lot, that a lot of gap, that's normal for qualifying. Pull the pads way the heck out of the way. Go and do your warm-up laps, your four laps, cross the uh, yard of bricks. You've got the whole lap to cool down, slow down gradually, pump up those brakes. I mean, truly, just by lifting off the throttle, there's enough aerodynamic deceleration from the downforce and drag to do a lot of the, the, quote, braking for you. You can downshift as well. There's a lot of other mechanisms you can use over the course of a full lap to get the car slowed way the heck down and come to a very easy and controlled stop on pit lane at the end of your run. So again, some pumping up the brakes for sure is required, but it's not a panic thing. It's not, oh my God, Stop! What everybody that I spoke to said was, huh, this sounds exactly like some teams were trying to get a little bit special, a little little playful here. Wanting to go big qualifying pad retraction gap to make sure there was no chance on earth there would be any contact pad knockback. Like never, not a chance. We're going for the big gap the qualifying gap but in the race to make sure we maybe if there are some little tiny contacts that happen with other teams using the race gap and they have those little tiny moments every now and then of friction happening well it's never going to happen to us that's going to be an advantage got a dog barking outside by the way apologies that's we're going to try and eke out a little advantage here that maybe will help us in the race um in doing that you create a pretty significant scenario for the drivers to have to manage because they don't have a whole lap to slow down. They come in off of turn four at 220 miles an hour or whatever and in a matter of seconds have to shed a ton of speed, get down to pit lane speed limit, and then go about their pit stop. If you have that big gap to overcome, not only are you pumping like mad to try and get pressure onto the pedal to then break through that big gap, That the levers are the spring loaded levers are creating. But here's the thing, and this is the part that was explained by, you know, multiple folks. Let's say you are pumping up the brakes, pumping up the brakes, and finally you get some pressure. Well, what often happens where we see these lockups is you've pumped and pumped and got nothing, and it's it's more or less gone to the floor multiple times. Finally, on whatever number pump, you get some pressure. But you've already gone, say, 70, 80% of the travel on the pedal. So there's only, you know, 10, 20, 30% of pedal travel left before it hits the stop. And there is, you know, that you can only go so far with the pedal. Well, what happens when all of a sudden, after getting nothing, you get something or everything, and you've only got 20 or 30% of pedal travel left to manage that? There's not enough travel to modulate the brakes when we step on the brakes on our road car if we're doing a panic stop uh, on the highway you hit the brake immediately you get immediate pressure back on your foot and although the pedal will have moved a little bit you have whatever it is 80 90 percent of pedal travel left to push down on a long way to go with that pedal travel where you can then manage the amount of pressure you apply, and maybe you apply a ton, and as you feel like, "Oh geez,' it's just about to lock up or whatever," you can pull back a little bit and modulate and such, and you've got a lot of room with the travel pedal, the pedal travel, to manage the car slowing down in a panic situation. Well, what happens when you only have 20 percent left? It's basically an on/off switch. You don't have enough room to modulate. You don't have enough travel left to modulate the braking, and so this is what we saw an absolute ton of. Uh, I shouldn't say a ton. This is what we saw with those that we witness experiencing the problem, as I'm told by people who absolutely know from people who assemble the brakes on their cars and know exactly what they're saying that they saw, and so the weird thing is we had some that had rear brake lockups. They crashed because that will spin the car in one direction or the other. Uh, With others, we saw the fronts lock up, and while they didn't crash, they went sailing through uh, the the slowdown stripe, pit lane speeding penalties and such. Um, So this is the issue we're talking about, the big gap to overcome. That big gap pushes fluid further back and away. Drivers having to pump up the pedal to try and get that fluid out to the pistons to then move the pads. But here's another thing, which I didn't include in the article. If you're pumping up and pumping up and you get a little bit of pressure, uh, you still have to overcome that force required to move those spring-loaded levers to get the pad out to the disc. And it's not like you build up more pressure and more pressure and more pressure with each pump. If you start to get a little bit of pressure at the bottom of the pedal travel and have to lift off and try again with another pump, it's not like you're where you left off in terms of, oh, there's pressure being held on the pads uh, and pressure being held on the levers. Uh, You've got to start over again and try and break through that resistance with the next pump. So it's, again all over the place, up and down, not exactly easy. So was the use of qualifying wide pad retraction gaps the cause? I can't tell you because I don't have the braking systems in front of me to tell you yes or no, but I can tell you those that I spoke with all said, "Eh, I think I know exactly what was happening. All right, we're back after a little break uh, you didn't know about, but had to make uh, breakfast for my wife and get her uh, get the process started for uh, today Is our long three-hour physical therapy session for her. So I had to get the, uh, the band struck up there, and we now have uh, both of our cats, Rocky and Rosie, sitting on my left, staring out the window. I would be very surprised if one of them didn't start chirping, wanting to be fed two hours early. It's pretty much normal. All right. I hope I answered the, uh, the break issue stuff. Wellington while away here momentarily, I also just took a look through the edit on the break piece that, uh, racers editor fired back. It was originally in the, uh, cool down lap post-race column, but with it included, it would have pushed that column to over 5,000 words, which is way too much for the interwebs. So broke that out into a separate piece so just polish that up and hopefully that'll be uh live here soon for you to uh if needed or if desired uh take a little read through that so got uh, a little while longer here so we're going to keep going i failed to mention in the beginning failure pretty normal thing for me uh our pal john wojnar who uh is one of the the leaders of the listener group known as Prue Day. It's a fun assembly of people, really, truly a fun, eclectic, wacky, silly group uh, of listeners who've come together. And I'm not involved in the group, the club. uh, It's just them doing their own thing. John asked me to mention that if you are wanting to go and catch the duel in Detroit, the IndyCar doubleheader coming up, not this weekend, but next, Apparently, there is a 15% discount on tickets if you use the discount code VOLUNTEER. I don't know if it matters if it's all caps, lower cap, non-caps, lower caps. That's pretty smart, Pruitt. Uh, VOLUNTEER. If you're looking to buy tickets for the Detroit Grand Prix, uh, visit their website. Maybe you can find a link to it on IndyCar.com as well. But if you go and look for the uh, Detroit Grand Prix site, John tells me as a Michigander, is that right, John? I don't know. Uh, As a man of Michigan, that uh, if you use volunteer, 15% off on your tickets. Also failed to mention, and this is a pretty significant failure, Ryan Terpstra, another uh, active member of the Prue Day on the topic of mental health and fun and people trying to have your back and be with you mentioned that, Hey, if there are any of you that are in need of a friend, silly friends, fun friends, you name it. Friends who love racing, love IndyCar, car, love maybe sports cars too. But Hey, if you are looking for some folks that you just might fall in love with, um, he said, Hey, be sure to tell folks, find him on Twitter or Facebook. I think as well, uh, find John Wojnar W O J N A R uh on both as well and there's some others too there uh I have a surprising number of crazy folks uh who've come together here uh but you can find them and they will gladly add you to the group it's kind of a more of a private chat thing than anything it's not like a public discourse item so worst case um Just send me a note, uh, however you like, whether it's on the social medias or my email address, marshall at MarshallPruit.com. That's also available on most of my websites. You can use on the contact page. Hey, if you are wanting or needing just to uh, maybe have some new friends, uh, some crazy people to have fun with and a lot of laughs, they're very irreverent, but they're also really supportive too. Had some cool get-togethers for the first time uh, last month at Indy, uh, send John or Ryan a note, or just reach out to me and I'll put you straight in contact with those, uh, those folks, those wacky Pruday folks. And, um, uh, I'd hope you'd, uh, enjoy the experience. And if not, uh, blame me and tell me I was totally wrong. And they oversold the experience. Let's go to John Hollinger. How you doing, John? It says, what if anything can be done about yellow flag pits closed rules to prevent a repeat of what happened to Scott Dixon and Alexander Rossi? Very unfortunate that two top contenders had their race races ruined so early. Reminds me of what happened to Scott Pruett '95 and Pat Patrick's subsequent rant. Um, yeah, I, I hear you, John. Uh, whenever really good driver X uh, gets caught out by the pits being closed. And I don't know why my voice just broke there, but hey, it did. This is the natural response. Why do we do this? This is stupid. Why, 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 why? And in those instances, you have, I have complete sympathy for them because that rule bit them in the butt. And then there's often other times where they are the massive recipients of great advantage. Uh, The hammer uh, turns into a feather four people at some point in time with this rule i don't know if i love it uh i gotta go juan montoya here it is what it is the thing that stood out to me a little bit here is we had three of the four ganassi cars that were going long on their first pit stop so strategy wise the team elected to go long on that first stop. Uh, it was what Canon Dixon and Erickson, uh, that all needed emergency service. Um, I believe Hildebrand as well. Um, Rossi, as you mentioned, I think Pagino, uh, who else? I think Ferrucci, maybe even Jack Harvey. Um, so not blaming anyone, right? Just saying that if we're talking strategy, there were, uh, I am just pulled it up here, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven penalties, eight, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting Canon. Uh, Eight penalties for emergency service in a closed pit, uh, all served on lap 45. So basically that first pit stop um, is where this happened for eight of the 33 runners. We can say team-wise, clearly we had three from the same team in Dixon, uh, Erickson, and Kanan. I'm trying to see, were there others here as well? Uh, I'm forgetting maybe one of the drivers uh, who was involved. Nonetheless, as a team, all but our boy Alex Pillow was running on fumes and had to stop, period, end of sentence, had to happen. Um, I don't know why Alex and Elio as well were able to stretch when some others weren't, right? Because if we look at Elio's teammate, Jack Harvey, he was one that was on fumes and had to stop. Emergency service penalty. Uh, three of the four Ganassi cars had to stop. Penalties, Alex didn't. I forgot to ask Elio about that, uh, so my bad. And I should just ask Alex as well. But this was a decision that they made to go long. And they, of course, did not know that Steph Wilson was going to encounter the brake problems that he did and crash and cause the yellow and the yellow was going to take a really long time. They didn't know these things. You can't blame them for the strategic choice they made. We can, however, just by the numbers, say that eight of the 33 starters ended up in a strategic based problem because of when the yellow fell. That means the 25 others that did not Uh, Of the 25 that did not, we know one or two of them were a little bit unicornish. were able to go crazy long and not suffer while their teammates did. But by and large, the majority of the field had pitted uh, before the crash or just as it was happening and whatnot. So, again, there's no blame to dole out here, but we do have to acknowledge that the majority of the field, Hondas and Chevys, elected to stop. Before Steph happened to crash, and the problem then became exacerbated as uh, a significant number of drivers, including the guy leading the on pole and or running up front, uh, Rossi, who was there thereabouts, a lot of front running cars were all of a sudden back running cars. Man, purely because of the timing of the crash and the policy of closing pit lane. I hear you. And this always comes up as it really needs to change when someone gets screwed. When people don't get screwed because of the strategery and timing of when the caution happens, do we hear the same complaints? Again, I just, these things tend to be, John, a bit situational for me. And since they're situational instead of uniform, Always a problem. People always complaining no matter what, even if they weren't disadvantaged. um, It just stands out as one of those things where I go, I get it. It sucks, but uh, this is the policy and it's not new and not everything's equal. Like fate isn't always kind to everybody, not at the same time. So part of me wonders, is this the spec era? we expect everything to be fair and equal and everyone have an equal chance. And sometimes we lose track of the fact that, yeah, sometimes just dang. Yeah. Sucks to be you. (laughs) Uh, You got the unlucky dog. Uh, Been on the receiving end myself. You hate it. You get pissed. You wish the rule wasn't that way. (sighs) That thing that you can't map out the thing that you can't predict that turns the race on its head, um, sometimes that ends up making pretty amazing finishes and results like we ended up having. Just the people who uh, were the expended ones for it to happen certainly aren't happy about it. So I get it. Uh, I never know how to really come away from this, John. Do we just leave it open or do we stick with what we have and the roulette wheel spins and we deal with the outcome uh, but rarely does that ball fall in the same number over and over and over again. That's where my head tends to lean, but uh, who says my head's leaning in the right direction? Uh, Mike Brockmeyer, have you seen a yellow flag take so long when there was so little track cleanup to do? Yeah, uh, not trying to be Mr. Super Critical here, but when we have very long cautions in IndyCar, and we are struggling to figure out why because of, as you mentioned, yeah, that didn't seem to take forever. Why were we farting around lap after lap after lap under yellow? The answer tends to come back. We had to shuffle the field. There were some either penalties to hand out and cars that we had to move. There there are some people who took back positions they shouldn't have, uh, blended improperly coming out of pit lane, whatever, that always seems to be the answer. So is this a case of, yeah, this stuff is hard to do? Sure, of course it is. Uh, you've got to look at information. You've got to make determinations. Did that person do something right or wrong? Is a penalty warranted? What is the penalty once we decide there is a penalty? Uh, how does that affect who's where? Do you move people to the back of the pack? That's what happened here with so many of the uh, the drivers who had to do those emergency uh, stops to get you know, a couple seconds of fuel so they could keep going before doing a full stop. Uh, it takes time. I totally get that. I just wonder, though. It's an uh, out loud wondering without any real significant knowledge behind it. It seems like when we have this problem, the answer is always the same. Reshuffle, look at things, got to get everything right. That's why it took so long. That's why we burned uh, double or triple the amount of lapses you might have expected it just makes me wonder, is there maybe a good reason to review the processes to wonder where, if there are time efficiencies that can be found? Or do we have a race control that is doing such a truly an amazing job, and although it feels like it takes forever from the outside, they are actually doing this like at lightning speed and as fast as it could possibly be done going through all the processes and reviews and this, that, and the other, like I don't have an answer to that. I just know that when we feel like, gosh, that took forever, we get the same kind of answer. And it just leads me to ask, are they operating at a hundred percent efficiency in doing what they have to do and getting the race going again? And therefore we just need to acknowledge, wow, they're kicking ass with how short a time it took, even if it feels to us like it was forever, or there are some efficiencies to find. And you go, yeah, you know what? Maybe there's some things we could do differently and carve a couple of yellow laps off these scenarios and get back to green sooner. I don't have the answer, but I do know. Uh, I would expect Jay Fry and his race control team to be looking at such things because that's what you do. All right, let's see. Let's rock through a couple of uh, related questions here. Uh, J.L. Papple from Reddit, whose name I do not recognize. Please describe the chain of responsibility for the individuals on the Rahal pit crew that released the car early. Is this uh, on ultimately the shoulder of the crew chief? Uh, it is clear from replay that the left rear tire changer was still working, as was the right front when the car began to roll really straightforward and simple. It is the responsibility of whomever the team has tasked with sending the car. And that might sound like an overly obvious answer. I don't mean it to be in most instances. It is the person just strictly talking Indy 500 here. That is the right front tire changer it's common almost uniform for that person to be the crew chief slash chief mechanic the person truly in charge of the car at all times throughout an event also maintains that position by changing the right front tire at indianapolis and as the person of authority and in control for all things that take place with the car From the garage to pit lane to tech to wherever, that person also is responsible for standing up, extending his or hand out or whatever method they choose and then signaling for the driver to go once they have determined all is clear, all is good. There are, in rarer occasions, the... Go person being not on pit lane, but on the timing stand or on pit wall. We've even seen until however many years ago, Roger Penske was often that guy saying go. Uh, so although the crew chief was there, uh, it was indeed someone different, not standing on pit lane, uh, telling the driver to go. So that's why I say whomever is placed in charge of the Go. Usually the right front person, not always, but in this case, I believe it was just a mistake. I mean, we see this happen in Formula One. We see it happen in NASCAR. It might not be, well, in NASCAR, it's never the whole wheel was loose. Uh, no lug nuts were placed on. It's usually one didn't get on or was one wasn't tightened, What whatever it is. It's not an uncommon thing. It sucks, but this is not an uncommon thing. uh We Randy Worley you asked or you mention it looks like Ray Hall, or I like Ray Hall, but it looks like looks to me like he left without being sent. Am I wrong? I can't answer that because I haven't asked Graham, but I didn't see or think that while watching the race. It would be bizarre for a driver to pull away at the Indy 500, really any Indy car race on their own. You'll see that in IMSA. And why? Well, very different thing. A much bigger fuel tank to fill. The length of the pit stop is 30 plus seconds. Tires are changed way before the fuel is finished. So what you end up hap- having in IMSA, more often than not, and there'll still be someone holding the proverbial lollipop, stopping the car. There'll be some, usually someone giving the official go from the team, but in a lot of instances, it's the driver who decides to go because with the tires done and truly they're sitting there for an extra 10 plus seconds, 15 however long waiting for the fuel to go in, they are looking in the mirror, watching the refueler, and the moment they see the refueler pull, that's when they let the clutch go and take off. Granted, you could have a bunch of cars pitting, coming in and out, whatever, where they will need to look to the crew chief or whomever's been assigned to let the car go, give them the signal so they don't just pull out right into someone that's, diving in in the pit box in front of them but again if there's a, a clean lane out and there's not a bunch of cars diving in it's pretty common in IMSA or endurance racing to have the driver use their own visual cue of when to go we don't get that in any car and while a Graham or whomever else could certainly watch the refueler pole uh usually It's not uncommon to have the tires finished before the refueling is done, but in some instances, uh, not too much before. Enough so where you'd say, I can't just automatically leave when I see the fuel probe come out of the car. I need my crew chief or the person on pit wall to tell me go because they can tell who's done with their tire changes. Coming back to the main question, just to, to close this, just a mistake. Uh, A a horrible one. Graham had a really good car. Graham had a great chance of doing well in the race. It's just a mistake. Um, There's always a variety of things that happen and transpire here. Why... What did the crew chief see or not see to lead them to believe the car was ready to go to then send it? Did they truly spot the, in this case, left rear tire changer or whatever, the, the most hidden tire changer at every indie pit stop? Did they see and think they were done or assume they were done? Was the person's uh stance, how they were sitting and crouching, did it look like they were done and had retracted and pulled away? Again, all these little things where you go, you don't know. Sometimes, as we've seen, not saying this happened here, but sometimes we see... Whether it's F1, whether it's NASCAR, IMSA, IndyCar, sometimes there's an assumption, right? You can see, you know, you're done with your tire. You can look, ac- you've looked across and seen that the other front tire changer is done. You can quickly glance and see the right rear tire changer is done. The one who's a little bit hidden, uh, you've got the refueler there as well, maybe blocking the way a, a tiny bit. Maybe a little bit of an assumption in some cases that the left rear. Is finished and you send a car on assumption, we see it happen. Not saying it happened here, but we see it happen. I don't know what happened here. I haven't checked. I apologize, maybe I pray. Maybe I should have. But should the when the car dropped, should the tire changer have waved or signaled that they weren't done? Were they truly caught unaware when the car was sent? I don't know the answer. Somewhere in here, there is the answer. One of the many possibilities. There's only so many things that you can really get wrong here to cause this. (sighs) Terrible for them. Graham looked like he had something awesome to achieve at Indy. Just a mistake. And you can punish people. You can change people out. You can do all kinds of stuff. I guarantee it's going to happen again this year on some team if not multiple times. And whether it's a wheel coming off or just not being fully tight or whatever, you take 33 cars, you multiply that times five, six, however many pit stops, you start getting to 150-plus opportunities for something to go wrong. Just I'm I'm a numbers person, an odds thinker, and while I don't fully understand gambling and odds, which many of you know maybe that's a bit of a funny thing for me to say, but in my mind, I'm always thinking, hey, you've got 33 of these cars. You've got five-plus stops during the race. Sometimes it can be a lot more than that. But anyways, you've got 150-plus, 165, 180, 200 total. How many of the total number of pit stops happen to be? Across those 200, 150 to 200, it would seem totally normal to me to have one pit stop go drastically wrong. You hate for whomever is that one person, if it's only one. But if we were to get through a three-plus-hour race with 150 to 200-ish pit stops and not have one tire fall off, again, you multiply how many tires have to go on and off during all those pit stops. And again, this number becomes huge. How many tires went on and off successfully during this motor race? And one car with one tire? Things went wrong. By the numbers, I'd say that is excellence. Of course for Graham and his team, there's no feeling of excellence, but just by the odds, it's remarkable these things aren't falling off all the time. Mostly because I'm not on pit lane anymore. So there you go. Um Dan Rice, you asked, Does any car do uh financial penalties or otherwise? Uh, for things like a wheel falling off? That's a great question. I don't know in this case. Uh, I'm looking through the penalty summary. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't really penalize a car that has crashed out of the race because it's not continuing. Was there a monetary fine or a something else after? I don't know. I'd tell you, boy, you would make some People really happy, unhappy, and make them want to punch you in the face if you're staring at a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of a repair bill due to a mistake, and you decide, well, you know, you we you need to give us another ten or fifteen grand or something for your mistake. Um, Yeah, I think there would be some fist fights on pit lane so there you go there uh let's see sam johnson uh does walmart have any job openings for tire changers i hear one is going to be looking for a job soon oh sam yeah it's the weird thing right that is applied to almost nobody's job in the world and that is unending unquestioned perfection hey in your job that you do from nine to five where it maybe you do work at walmart maybe you're in an office maybe you drive a truck maybe you do whatever except for folks i don't know working with nuclear missiles and a few other things where does the average human being if not like 99 percent of the human beings alive today where does permanent perfection come in as an expectation for one's job? It doesn't. And it's as a guy who makes three to five mistakes a day in my job. Hey, use the wrong word. Hey, could you fix this? Hey, whatever, whatever. Like just, and that's just the professional side and the life side. I make mistakes every day with all kinds. Anyways if you think about the amount of things we do wrong on a daily basis in our professional lives, whatever it is, and you think, okay, but these people need to go 230 plus miles an hour wheel to wheel side by side for 200 laps, never miss an apex, never make a mistake, never do anything, never crash, never, 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 never. And the people sitting on pit lane crouched, with a vehicle coming straight at them at 60 miles an hour, whatever the number is, never flinch, never get anything wrong, do this over and over and over and over again. Never make a mistake. It's just so unreasonable. And yet, one person messes up the left rear tire on Graham's car and, lynchings firings bombings uh cancelings you name it and i'm not saying that you're calling for any of that of course sam but yeah there's not a lot of understanding here and i get that graham Rahal doesn't really care why someone made a mistake it's the mistake and the result and the penalty that comes from it that sticks with him of course I'm just saying take this scenario into normal life and you realize that, yeah, the, the darn near miracle, the thing that we don't celebrate enough is that there aren't more problems like this. Um, that is the truly incredible, remarkable thing that so few problems happen. It's, I think because there's so much excellence on your average IndyCar, NASCAR, F1 pit lane, et cetera, that when it does happen, it seems like a momentous occasion where we're surprised by it and therefore feel that, well, you let this thing that never happened happen. So penalty, bad, no job, you go greet at Walmart or something. I don't know. Sometimes, uh, I think we maybe need to look the other way and go, oh my gosh, can you believe that happened? It never it really almost never happens. Can you believe it actually happened? What a freak occurrence, but we don't, because that's not human nature. Uh, Matt Johnson, Johnson, why did I say Johnson? I wanted to call you crew chief for, uh, Scotty McLaughlin. It's not a bad thing though. Matt's pretty amazing. Matt Johnson. Uh, what do you think? uh had the biggest influence on the low number of cautions track conditions with cooler weather stable car setups or something else i think it was certainly the cooler weather for sure matt had it been hotter decently hotter thinner air even with a lot of downforce piled on uh, when we had some hot days of practice and drivers were running in packs i didn't end up running the story because it just didn't quite fit what i expected for the race but man, there were some, I don't want to say terrified drivers, but spooked drivers of like, wow, I'm running out here in race trim, race downforce, you name it, and I'm just waiting for this thing to crash every lap. Uh, Cooler conditions, thicker air, certainly I think helped bring more stability and less question marks as to whether the cars would be good enough to run through a stint and not just completely lose performance, fall off and become a a dire handful. So I'm sure that there's some other contributing factors, but I would say weather probably actually the biggest players that stood out to me, uh, Tim Bailey, my question, you state Alex Polo exited turn four with like seven to eight laps to go and defended the inside to the point where he missed the pit wall an entrance by maybe 10 yards should IndyCar mandate the pit in blend line should not be crossed hashtag me personally I think he was endangering himself and anyone following well if a IndyCar is about what six feet wide I think maybe a little bit less than six feet wide but and we're talking he was 10 yards, so that's 30 feet. If I'm just using the, the math here, he was many car lengths away from that happening. So uh, I read one or two things about folks thinking that Polo did some dangerous weaving and whatnot. I can't disagree with your views or assessments. I can tell you that having watched the same race, there's nothing that stood out to me as dangerous um, or similar, uh, or like you mentioned here, Tim. Uh, not crossing that line, maybe. I'm forgetting whether drivers are advised not to. I would think IndyCar would penalize for sure. If that was a penalty, you have the, well, there's so much going on during the race, maybe they didn't see it. Uh, I, can t- I can guarantee you. If any team saw it, any spotter saw it, the way we've gotten into this whole tattletale thing, They'd be telling IndyCar, hey, on lap so-and-so, this person did this. uh, Please go look and penalize them. So one way or the other, if it was a violation, I have a strong feeling it would have been presented to IndyCar and action would have been taken. Since it wasn't, I would say maybe what you saw and thought was actionable was deemed not actionable. So, uh. You know, if we go back to 2019, Simon Paginot's win, the amount of uh, left and right movement on the steering wheel he did, yeah, uh, that to me is the standard bearer for, oh boy, you are making sure that your steering rack is fully exercised all the way both ways. I didn't see anything from Alex that jumped out as, oh man, some of the veterans need to go bark at him and coach him up. He he was running afoul of uh, what he should be doing, so... I don't know if I'd suggest for him to move the car much more than he did, but I didn't see anything that made me go, oh, bad, 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 smack him on the wrist. Uh, All right, we're going to get down to the final couple of questions here. So we need to get going out to uh, physical therapy here shortly. Um, I'm going to go backwards and see how far I get from the, uh, the good old red line that our pal Jim Kaiser puts together for me. Uh, let's see he has all right Alexi Hrushko how you doing Alexi Marshall best wishes for you and your wife thank you and cats look at hey rock you got a shout out buddy he's currently grooming himself and not giving a crap so can we start with a silly season now will Elio return to full-time in 2022 covered that off we hope uh, is Felix in trouble six races in zero finishes in the top 10 I'd give it a little bit longer on that one, Alexi, the team is saying all the right things. Now everything's good. We think he's going to turn it around. He's our guy, long-term, etc., cetera, et cetera. They weren't necessarily saying those things about Oliver last year, by the way. So there is, there is something we need to acknowledge. They weren't necessarily wrapping, bathing Oliver in as much long-term talk uh, as they have with Felix. I'll tell you this, though, and this is, I stated up front, I want, Felix there for a long time to win races, vie for championships. At yeah, no point in time do I want Felix Rosenquist out of the NTT IndyCar series, period. Just to be clear, we're getting to that stage. We're not necessarily there right now, here, June 3rd or whatever it is, but end of June, July, August. Is this the time where agents and teams do a lot of talking about the following year? Oh, yes. Do any of us who are fans of this talented Swede, do any of us want to see him get through the next couple of races having a rough time and being still 20th-ish in the points by the time we get, say, through the end of June? If he has a rough weekend in Detroit... Road America, where he did so well last year, but by chance that doesn't go totally his way, I think Road America is going to be a really, it sucks to say it, but I think Road America is going to be the real test. Knowing that the guy was a genuine badass last year at Road America. If we don't see that same type of performance this year at the track where again the guy was wow, wow, wow. <laughs> right? Hey, uh, we think something good's gonna happen here. Of course, uh, we had that double header pretty awesome with him being able to break through in the second race, get his first win. Um I would say It'd be really hard to believe if he's coming out of Detroit with more not great results. Could be totally not his fault. Gets hit both races. He's just, you know, almost bottom of the points as a result. I think it's going to be really hard to go to a place where he won his first, his one and only race so far. And if he is off from Pato, if he's significantly off of Pato for whatever reason. I think the thought process for most teams would be, all right, man, we're going back to where you had your breakthrough. We know how good you can be here. If we've had a really rough open to our relationship and there's something not happening here as well, just saying, I think it's human nature to use that again For folks to maybe say, I don't know. I don't know what it is that isn't working, but I'm now wondering if it's ever going to work. Um, So, yeah. Uh, Marshall Pruitt, the fan, says, Boy, I hope Detroit Rock City goes super well for Felix and Road America, and we no longer have to talk about this. If June's a little bit of a poop show, I would think the team would have to start asking some hard questions of we don't do this with two cars to have one at the front and one at the back. So what do we need to do to change this dynamic? Does it change by making whatever alterations with the same driver in the seat? Or do we go to a third driver in three years in this seat in the hopes that that driver can give us a one-two punch. Repeating a little bit of something we've spoken about in the past, but the grand hope for Felix at Chip Ganassi Racing when they were a two-car team was for Felix to be that one-two punch with Dixie some point in the future whenever Dixie might retire. Felix to rise and become the one in a one-two punch with whomever would fill uh, that second seat. Got a little bit of, I mean, we had a pretty good glimpse of what could be possible in their first season together where Felix was awesome. Reasons I don't fully understand, that did not translate so much in the second year. And here we are, Felix moving on, trying to find something else better, etc. You think Aaron McLaren SP went into the season thinking they were going to have anything other than a one-two punch with this truly awesome lineup? Of course not. I'd have to say they're as surprised as anybody. Felix, I'm sure, is surprised. Going, I don't know, what is going on? Cartoon anvils, go away. Is this the kind of team that would have patience to just ride and hope things improve next year? So just to wrap this, and man, again, I hope we never have to talk about it again because it all gets resolved positively. It's incumbent upon Felix ASAP to give his team no reason to start asking themselves hard questions as to whether he's there guy to give them that one two threat everywhere they go and if he can't for whatever reason of his making of not his making I would only expect a team like Aaron McLaren SP to do what is in their best interest that's the cold hard part love Felix never want him to go if you can't get it done we're gonna find someone who will flip this what if Felix had opened the year and is kicking ass, won a race, is sitting third in the standings, and it's Pato, just misery constantly. And there was, it was his first year with the team. Felix is second. They know him. They get him, totally understand everything he's capable of, running up front, everything is hoped for. And Pato's in his first year with them and way at the back. Would you think they would do the hope game and say, "Oh, let's do it another year and just hope things get better? Or would they do what every serious team does and should do? you got to be cold-blooded about this stuff until you have a proven solution in the car. As you look through Andretti, you look through Ganassi, you look through Penske, there are some drivers, not all drivers, but some drivers in those teams where you go rock solid, know what we're going to get from you, know that we can count on you to be our championship contender or one or two of you, whatever the number you're going to be ha- title contending each year. You're going to have ups and downs, but the downs are never going to take you out of the fight. And for those that don't, if they're bringing money, great, you can drive. But if it's truly a merit-based decision on whether we continue to employ you to fight for us to get a championship, that's where things get tough. And so flip the roles. If it was Pato first year and way at the back, despite all the potential and whatever you'd seen before, I'd expect the team to be asking questions as to whether Pato remains with the team at the end of the year if things continue in a negative direction. So I don't think it's personal. I just think that it's in the team's best interest to always be doing whatever it needs to, to have the highest number of vehicles possible running towards the front. It sucks. I hate it. I hate it. Look, I was let go by an IndyCar team because they found someone better. Can't argue with that. A better person, better engineer no argument i didn't like it i hated it i was embarrassed and i was all kinds of things but can't argue replaced by a friend actually and he's better than me and i hated it and they made the right choice (sighs) it happens in this performance-based industry there we go uh let's see You also mentioned, will finishing third at Indy help Simon stay at Penske? I don't know. Simon's in a better spot in the championship, obviously, as a result of double points and finishing as well as he did. He's now fourth. He's been very consistent. I mean, very consistent. That helps in a championship. Uh, Joseph Newgarden's going to get there, as he always does, but I don't know if Roger looks at Simon and says, we know we count on you every year at Indy, uh, but I don't know if we really can go into every season thinking of you as a championship threat. So do we just shift your focus towards, hey, you've got a a lifetime job, the month of May, with us, and we're going to focus you elsewhere, sports cars, uh, with our program in the future. I don't know. I've heard those who believe Simon's fate was sealed before the start of the season and they're just going to finish this out and then move him. Um, I think a win at the 500 might have been the thing that delivers an automatic contract extension in IndyCar. For all I know, they've already given him one and none of us know about it based on his third place. I don't know, but uh, some folks that I think highly of who tend to be smarter than I am, Heard from a couple of them who said, yeah, it just feels like this relationship in IndyCar full-time has, uh, maybe, uh, met its conclusion. Uh, let's see. The last question you ask here, Alexi, is, uh, will Ryan Hunter Ray stay from one more year with Andretti after a great run on Sunday? Um, with whom will the Indy lights championship from the season sign? I no idea. Cause I don't know who the champion is going to be. Um, Interesting one on Ryan. I don't know. I tell you when I heard about the signing a one-year extension, it's happy for him, obviously, but it, it it landed with me like it was the final extension. Don't know if that's true. Hope it's not. not. I have no knowledge that I'm slyly passing your way here. I'm hoping that he gets signed to more and more and more Extensions, but it did sound a little bit like, hey, we're gonna one last hurrah this thing uh, the rumors that we've heard spoken about for a while is that d h l probably wasn't gonna come back but then decided to, and so they are back, but for one more year. is that accurate? I don't know, uh but I can't tell you, but yeah, um I'm gonna start asking some of these questions here soon, Alexi, try and get a better feel for silly season. All right, where do we start to wrap up here? Um, Mark Harasim. Mark, I don't know if I've read a question from you before. If not, thank you for sending this in. Extend some nice well wishes for my wife. Um, also thank her for her uh, military service. Thank you for that, Mark. That's very kind. It says, it seemed like Honda, for the most part, had the advantage for the 500 through practice and qualifying. And again, on race day, when it counted, do you think we'll see any- uh, a more even split between Hondas and Chevys for the rest of the year, also, what are you hearing about a third engine manufacturer joining the fray uh, and you say uh, also thanks for all the quality writing throughout the five hundred coverage uh, while being out on the left coast well I might might push back a little bit on the quality part mark but uh thanks brother, kidding aside love uh love doing what I do, and it's truly just done for folks like you i mean i don't I know this stuff I need to write about it for myself, so i do it hoping that you all enjoy it. And it's just it's always cool when folks uh send back something saying, Hey, that garbage that you barfed up, uh, it wasn't that bad. Uh let's see. I've heard nothing about a third engine manufacturer coming. Would love to. Heard nothing. Uh so heard crickets there. Do I think there's going to be either more parity or less parity? for the rest of the year between Chevy and Honda. Uh, great question. Once again, if I am just looking at who has done the winning, we had Honda take the first three. We had Chevy take, uh, the next two, both the, uh, second round at Texas with Pato, uh, obviously a little bit of Indy grand preage victory for Renus VK, which is awesome. um, and then Honda back on top at the 500. Uh, I don't know if I've seen anything outside of the Speedway to lead me to think that there was much of a gap. I think it's going to be a pretty even-ish mix the rest of the way out. We expect Joseph Newgarden to do, do Joseph Newgarden things. I don't know what I was about to use for his first name there. I don't think I was going to say Joseph, but maybe I was. I don't know. Uh, Joseph, we expect to get into the win column here soon. He's got two second places. A little bit ways back in the championship, but again, that guy, you always have to count in for a couple of wins. Um, Power, of course, we expect to get into the win column because he's crazy. Uh, Rossi fully expect him to get in here. Hunter Ray. I think we could count in, uh, our man, Romain Groschon. It feels like he's going to have a win here before very long Pato. I think we're going to get another win or two out of, uh, VK, right. We're on VK watch. We think he could definitely be winning more races. Jack Harvey feels like he might be able to break through here, Graham, of course. I know a number of these that I've mentioned are Honda teams, but you know, uh, I expect the Aaron McLaren SP team to get at least one more win. If not two. I expect Penske to contribute two or three or four possibly before the end of the year. We expect Ganassi, both Dixon and Polo. Feels like Marcus Erickson is just about 24 months pregnant with getting that first win. Um, Number of folks that should be breaking through, Ed Carpenter. I know he's only got one more chance at Gateway to get a win this year, but would I be surprised if Ed won? Not at all. Again, Carpenter team's looking badass pretty much wherever they're going right now. Um, I think we're going to see some decent variety on the uh, engine manufacturer front, Mark. Um, Yeah, boy, I wish, wish we were hearing about a third manufacturer. Uh, let's see, Andy Rolf. How are you doing, Andy? He says, can you share your thought on this idea? Increasing fuel tank capacity, capacity, at Indy, making tire degradation, a contributor to pit strategy and remove the possibility of running fuel conservation to the point of making fewer stops. I want to see a hammer down race for 200 laps. We used to have that somewhat often back in the day. And I can tell you that it led to things being pretty seriously stretched out. So I'm not saying that I love fuel conservation races, Andy. I do think, though, if there are points in time during a race where some drivers, some teams say, hey, we're going to want or need to do this. We're going to try and do something. We don't know what's going to happen with yellows, but we think if we start banking some fuel now, uh, this, this might pay off with something. Uh, based on how things play out later, you end up getting some fun surprises. doesn't always work, but the possibility is there. I guess I'm going back to a lot of the cart era Indy 500s, and boy, of course there were yellows and things packed up a bit, but with the best cars being up front and taking off and the not quite as good cars behind, and everyone just running more or less as fast as they could, you ended up just getting things stretched out, stringed out, Cars, a lot of cars put laps down, Yeah, right? Kind of a one or two pony race, maybe three. Not a lot of surprises to expect, and there you go. So I hear you, but doing something different for the 500, radically changing everything just to eliminate the need for fuel consumption, Uh, yeah, I, I, I would not make that call and I would not see IndyCar making that call. Uh, Chris Germond, I don't know if it's jur or gur, so I apologize if I'm mispronouncing uh. uh, best to you and your lovely bride. I'm currently lifting Rocky with my right hand to move him out from behind the microphone. Uh, curious as to your take on Alexander Rossi's toilet bowl of a season and why it may, uh mean as he comes into a contract year and what that may mean coming into a contract year. Seems that he's uh taken over the cartoon anvil that uh is just owned by Andretti Drivers. Uh said love the positive attitude he possesses, but even he's got to be wondering about what he needs to do or what he's been doing to anger the gods. Um and then Sig Sigdan, Sigdan from Reddit, what's wrong with the Andretti team? Aside from Hertha winning one race, the rest of the team has been pretty poor. I'd put some of that with the last question here down to some situational stuff. Again, if not for Hunter Ray's break problems, not of his own making on uh, that last stop, he's a top three, top four, top five finisher, right? He was in for a really good run. Colton. I don't have it fully sussed out. I know that his quote after the race is that they made some, Wrong tire choices, and really, he just went backwards, I think, of those last two stops in particular. But, yeah, I mean, they they lost the handle there. Do I expect Herta, Rossi, and Hunter Ray to all have wins by the end of the year? Yes. And to be generally competitive? Yes. So I'm not super worried about all that. It's hard to ignore the fact, though, that Marco Andretti and his one-off was nowhere the entire time they found a broken floor and they found a this and they changed the motor and they did all kinds of things with all the resolutions in place come race day. He was nowhere. Keep in mind Pagano qualified what 26th and finished third. There were a couple of long haul drivers, right? Joseph started 21st, finished 12th. Uh, Sage, Started thirty first, finished seventh. Uh Ferrucci twenty third to sixth, right? So just saying, bad qualifying things didn't go great. Wow, we got a long way to go in the race, but they did it. There were a number of those stories. It was possible, it happened, we saw it, it's in the record books. Marco Andretti started nineteenth, finished twenty-fifth. Never a factor, never there, never anything. Um The guy I'll always love, and I hope we always love, James Hinchcliffe, started 16th, finished 21st. I didn't look too deeply into what didn't happen for Hinch. It's kind of a finite point for me of trying to understand for those who were never really there in the race, figuring out why they weren't there when I really didn't notice them. But it's been a not great year for Hinch. Hard to say otherwise. Some of it's absolutely been cartoon anvil, not his fault. Oh, man, that really sucks type stuff. Also, there's some other things that you got to go. I don't know why things are playing out that way. But, yeah, when it hasn't been cartoon anvil stuff, why have some of the other finishes been a little substandard? I don't know. Strange thing to observe. There are two Canadian drivers, full-time drivers in the NTT IndyCar series. They are currently ranked dead last and next to last in the standings. One of them, not a surprise, Dalton Kellett. Love the kid, truly love the kid, appreciate who he is, what he does, what he brings to the AJ Foyt team, but we also know he's not destined for greatness in IndyCar. Not surprised, not picking on him, saying anything negative about him being last. Hinch being right next to him in 24th. Some of that's going to change, of course. Elio is currently 14th in the standings. It's, he's going to fall back, obviously, once uh, we get through a few races. Um, but Romain, having done three races, is 21st in the standings. Canaan, having done three races, is 22nd. Behind them... Ed Jones in 23rd, nightmare race for him at Indy. Got a feel for him. Hinch 24th, Dalton 25th. I don't know what's not working there, but this is a guy who had his best season ever with Andretti Auto. His best IndyCar season ever was with Andretti Auto Sport. Uh, We know he can drive. We know that team can deliver good cars. There's just something right now across those first six races um, hasn't Worked, and Indy for sure was nothing but a disappointment because he was just never a factor. Um, But if you look at the four full-timers, Colton slid back, obviously, with uh, not a great Indy GP finish, compounded by not a great 500 finish. He's in seventh in the standings. We expect that to change for the better soon. Rossi, nightmare season we know about. He's 15th. Title aspirations, yeah, that's not going to happen this year. He can and should, though, start charging back up the standings, earning a lot of points, and, again, a win or two. Hunter Ray, he's had a similarly nightmarish year, but, man, uh, it, it does feel. I know feel isn't a thing that can be quantified, but it does feel like, though, that there's some positivity coming from Rossi and Hunter Ray We expect Colton to get back to his usual jam and running up front. Hinch is the one outlier. And I need to start asking questions here soon to get a better grasp for what and why. But he wasn't alone at the 500. Marco was nowhere the whole time. And even when it sounded like things got fixed and improved, there was still no burst of speed to move him forward in the race. We did see Alexander running towards the front till that fateful first pit stop. Timing and penalties and all that. Hunter Ray was there until the brake problem. Yada yada yada. It's there. I know it looks bad, and where a couple of them are sitting in the points, not great. But I, I would struggle to say it's where they belong. And time to panic because that's all is capable of. I'd say that's a hundred percent not the case. Um. All right, I think we're just about done. Chuck Bittner, you're asking why did ECR not change the front wing on Connor's car uh, during either of the final stops? Would a lost time and track position from a longer stop, uh, or you say, Jesus, I can't even read. I'm sorry, Chuck. Would the lost time and track position from a longer stop be a greater penalty than the aero performance drop-off? Uh, either way, what a performance to get that car home. Can't answer that because I don't really know how much the exact – lap time penalty was, but I do know that this race this year with so few cautions, it really was a track position race, Chuck. So if I am on the Ed Carpenter team and I'm having to make that decision, unless we're talking about, wow, look at the numbers, the straight line numbers tell us that we're, you know, we got, we're dragging a parachute here again and we're really suffering. If it's not that terrible, knowing that you're running, other than the time he was leading, um, running in traffic most of the time, maybe that problem drag being mitigated a bit, knowing that it was so much of a track position race, even though you can do front wing changes in a very short amount of time, I would say my concern would be giving up track position and really struggling to get it back. So faced with the same decision, Chuck, I think I would have done the same thing they did by leaving it. So was it the right decision? I don't know, but I would have done the same thing. Uh, Daniel Summersgill, you ask, who was my uh, driver of the race and candidates for Mr. and Mrs. Invisible? Uh, you mentioned Sage Karam had a fantastic race. Obviously, uh, asking if Mr. Invisible would be either Hinch again or our French fry, Sebastian Bourdais. In my little post-race column, I actually spun this out. It's so the first time I've really felt the need to put about four or five names in there. So, yeah, Simona, we hoped for, thought there would be a lot. There wasn't. Um, She was really the only Penske-affiliated driver who didn't go forward or do much during the race. Strange to see the Dale Coyne team do so well in qualifying but not be felt. At all in the race that was strange. Ed Jones had a little bit of a chance for a little while, but their fuel strategy just did not work out. Um, yeah, Daniel, there were there were more on the list than not on the list, and that's about the first time I can think of done that before. Um, last question we're going to take because we've got to get going here shortly. Uh, Daniel Summersgill again with Tony Kanon finishing tenth in the forty-eight CGR Kart Indy. Does this take some of the pressure off of Jimmy Johnson to get better results in order to stay out of a battle to avoid losing out in the leader circle, uh, even though Tony only has one more race to come later this season to help in that regard? And that's a great question, as always. You tend to send those in, so uh, big thumbs up to you. Uh, right now, and this is a huge thank you, Tony Kanaan, uh We have the number 48 car vaulting from kind of bottom-ish of the leader circle to 16th in the standings. Now, that's the great question that you've posed here. So we have six races down, 11 to go. Only one of those happened to be an oval. So we've got 10 road and street courses left. Won't be surprised if Jimmy has a lot of finishes in the high teens, low 20s. So that's going to chip away over those 10 races pretty consistently at the gains Tony made at the 500 in the leader circle standings. They're at 104 points right now, entrant points, um, right behind them, Alexander Rossi at 101 right behind that Hunter Ray at 94. Do we think Rossi and Hunter Ray are going to leapfrog past pretty quickly? Yes. um, our man Rock, our man, Mr. French Fries, currently nineteenth uh in the Foyt entry. Do we think that they indeed are going to move forward ahead of the 48 as we get rolling into Road and Street courses? Yes, absolutely. From there, we'll hope that obviously things start to go better for Felix Rosenquist, his entry is in twenty, uh P twenty, Ed Jones, P twenty one uh, Hinch, P-22, Kellett, Rock, uh, P-23, uh, Hinch is in 22nd, Kellett's 23rd, and then Carlin with Max Chilton is P-24. I, okay, dude, I got it. You're going to get fed in a minute. Sorry, he gets a little cranky. Uh, Yeah, this is going to be a little bit of a risky one, I think, but... Depending on how Carlin season goes, depending on how Kellett's season goes, could I see there being a slight pad where the 48 car could finish 22nd in entrance standings with Dalton and possibly Carlin still behind? Yeah, Carlin's so far behind since uh, they had to withdraw at the Indy GP. It's going to take, like, wow, just living on the podium, I think, to uh, get them out of leader circle jeopardy. Kellett as well he's gonna have to do some impressive things to get out of next to last so that might be the thing we start tracking Daniel the uh 48 car watch and uh what happens there and can they stay out of leader circle jeopardy so how crazy how crazy all right y'all I really appreciate you really appreciate all the questions you sent in Wish I could have gotten all, but as usual, uh, you guys don't want to listen to a five-hour podcast. So I will say thank you to the Justice Brothers and congratulations on that Indy 500 win with Marshank Racing. Cooper Tires, thank you so much for not only your many, many years of support here in the podcast, but for making the road to Indy what it is and supporting our young drivers, the developing teams, engineers the everything the work that cooper tires does to support women in racing as well the shift up now program there's just it's good people doing good things really really good people and then torontomotorsports.com terrible people can't stand them the worst ever kidding love our friends there uh, it was great to have our, our pal willie t rib show up as well uh saturday the day before the 500 and post for some photos sign some autographs sign some of the new t-shirts and stickers and whatnot so what a magical month this with the the farewell here this is the close of all my content for uh, the 2021 Indy 500. so thanks for riding along thanks for reading at racer some of the stuff that i posted on RoadAndTrack.com. <sighs> speak to you next week